The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. Museums and cultural attractions like zoos and art galleries might seem like traditional institutions, but actually the best are at the forefront of using data to attract more visitors and look after the ones they already have better, thanks to Kiwi startup Dexibit. Started in only 2015, the other week they picked up most innovative high-tech solution and most innovative high-tech software solution for the creative sector at the high-tech awards. They count some of the world's great institutions as their clients, like the National Gallery in the UK and the Smithsonian, and locally, the Auckland Art Gallery and Te Papa have been right at the front of building out the tech. Dexibit uses visitor data, machine learning and forecasting to allow institutions to know more about their visitors and to plan for and serve them better. The founder and CEO, Angie Judge, joins us now to talk the entrepreneur's journey from idea through to being an integral part of the future of some of the world's great institutions. G'day. How are you? Good, thank you. Thank you very much for being here today. Hey, I saw in an article that you were kind of destined for this role with a mother in the cultural sector and father in entrepreneurial IT. Um, Tell me about your path into tech. Yeah, I think I was one of the few kids who grew up in the 80s, a digital native before there were digital natives. Uh, so my my father was a software engineer back in the days where you use punch cards for programming. Um, and my mother certainly gave me my love for the arts. And so the apple fell somewhere between those two trees. But certainly, I think growing up, um, tech wasn't really something that was put forward as a career choice for young women at that point. And I remember at school asking my teachers if I could learn about technology and I got a Pittman secretarial typing course for my travels, which turns out was a really handy skill to learn. But um, I'm glad to see things are a bit different these days. And isn't that funny that, you know, the first days of um, computer programming uh, were very female dominated. And then suddenly mm. the middle of it became simple administrative roles were given to women in their world. Yeah, the, some of the great innovative uh, innovators, if we go back in time, have been women and it's um, it's great to see that that's being celebrated now because I think that history was long forgotten in the tech world and people were, were talking um, more about, um, less about Ada Lovelace and more about sort of um, Steve Jobs and, and I think it's it's great to see those women being recognised. 
I remember um, the excitement. You say, you know, growing up in the 80s, digital native before it was a thing. I remember mum bringing home um, the first um, Apple Macintosh when she was doing uh, one of her university uh, degrees. And it was so exciting. There wasn't an awful lot that a small child could do with it. Mm. But it was so exciting uh, to, to have this thing that would hum and kick into life and the dot matrix printer and the like. And we were all quite talented back then, weren't we? Because we used to use like DOS commands to launch simple programs and things I remember the first time when my my father bought home the internet back before that was a thing and we dialed up on the internet and went through the, all of the humming and noises and he said love this is going to be the future of the world and we logged on and talked to some old guy in a chat room <laughs> which is probably a terrible thing to do as a young girl now but back then it was really really cool <laughs> <laughs> the future of the world is some old guy in his dressing room. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's so cool. And so what, how did you um, push through? Because you had a career in tech before coming to start up Dexibit, didn't mm. you? Yeah, I worked for um, a couple of different companies like uh, Hewlett Packard and an Israeli telco software company called Amdocs. <laughs> uh, and I think for me, coming into entrepreneurship a bit later in life really served me well. You know, going out and getting some experience and making all my mistakes on somebody else's dime rather than my own. <laughs> Um, and really seeing how people do things in a, in a company with billions of dollars, um, I think is, has been a, a great saving grace for me. When you come to do things on a budget, you kind of have been there and done that before and you can optimise for your own uh, needs. Were you always on the lookout for your own venture? Oh, for sure, yeah. I, I always knew deep down in my bones that I wanted to do my own thing. Um, and it wasn't necessarily a case of, waiting for the right idea, but more the right time in life when I felt like I'd been equipped with everything I needed. And was Dexabit the first uh, venture that you started? Um, it was the first successful one yeah. so far. Um, I, I did a couple of other ideas on things. I'd never really got off the ground with anything, you know, sort of typical story of, you know, tried and failed at a couple of things first. Um, at one stage, I thought it would be really cool to teach people how to cook online and somebody said to me, oh, you should package up, you know, get a chef, get a nutritionist, package up some recipes and send people out ingredients on a subscription every week. And I was like, nobody will buy that. <laughs> <laughs> really wrong. Um, uh, but yeah, Dexabit was the first thing that I really, really got off the ground. Um, and I think it was, you know, right place, right time, right idea, right fit for me. Tell me how that idea came to be uh, the moment where it all clicked so to speak well, I think click is the right <laughs> word and <laughs> um, I was standing in the Smithsonian which these days is an, an unusual thing for me to do but back then it was the first time I had and um, this was a museum where I looked it up later and about five million people a year were going through that particular site and I saw the security guard literally click accounting people through the door with one of those old-fashioned clicker mm -hmm. counters. And I thought, this cannot be. You know, <laughs> this is when it was like 2015 or something. You know, surely technology has moved on, and it hadn't. And as sure enough, to this day, many of the great museums around the world still click account people through the door. And aside from being really painful on the sum, it doesn't actually tell you much about those visitors and what they do. And that really provided the inspiration for the company and the technology and the kind of disruption that we wanted to bring to a sector that was quite underserviced in that space. 
what was the journey in doing that? So from having that uh, moment of realization, wow, there's there's a lot tech could do to help the sector. Um, tell me about your next steps because you've done a really amazing job of using uh, existing programs and infrastructure uh, in order to take that idea in a very very quick time from um, concept to being in some of the world's greatest museums. Yeah, I think um, we we certainly went a fairly typical route of. Um, doing what they call a minimum viable product of putting together the basis of our solution, understanding what the problem was, blah, blah, blah. Um, but we focused really fast, really hard on going international and being global. Um, and that's been a huge advantage. You know, there's only so many museums in New Zealand. They've been incredibly supportive and wonderful innovatives, innovators in their own right and helping us put that idea together. But the real market for us was always in the US and the UK and Europe. Um, and we headed out really quick. Um, and so I think that was a really crucial step for us in, in being successful on that jo- journey. Um, and to be honest, the, the company and, and the product looks really different to what I had imagined. Um, and so sort of giving yourself that freedom to start with an idea but not be too attached to it. Um, I originally thought that all of the, the product idea, the the special magic source would be about dashboarding and sort of establishing a live view of what was happening right now. And it turns out that it's actually more about what's going to happen next, you know, what what the predictive analytics are saying that's most important to our customers. And I wouldn't have known that back then. So really listening to what people had to say and sort of letting the idea take you where it will uh, really helped us get to where we are today. Okay, maybe um, yeah, maybe just please describe for us what the product does today, and then it'd be really cool because I know that a lot of people who follow um, this podcast they love to hear about the steps to take idea to reality. So it'd be cool to go back to the the journey to get there as well. So yeah, how, how do you describe it to a friend at a barbecue today? <laughs> and so Dexabit predicts, analyzes, and reports for visitor experience and venue performance and cultural or visitor attractions. So. In layman's terms, if I was explaining that to my nana, that's more like museums and galleries and zoos and parks and all of those sorts of places that we enjoy visiting in our spare time. Um, when we go there, people who run those places like to understand what brings us there, what we're doing once we get there, um, and what will help us um, come back in the future. So it's a typical marketing funnel like any business. You know, how do we attract more visitors? How do we get them to enjoy their time on site, to spend more money in the cafe or the shop and get them um, coming back as members or repeat visitors? Um, But for this industry, it's incredibly important. Um, You know, you think about government grants, which have traditionally sustained our cultural sector. In many parts of the world, they're under enormous pressure right now. Um, there's a lot of changes happening in the tax world that are affecting donations and uh, endowments and things like that. Um, and like any business, these attractions are facing competition from random things like Netflix. Mm. And so the the ability to be commercially sustainable and to grow on their own right um, is incredibly important and the timeliness of that is, is so relevant right now. Um, and analytics, um, and particularly sort of AI-informed analytics uh, becomes a really, really powerful tool in helping them achieve that. So I guess there's kind of two parts to that. One is um, actually 
building more business for them by getting people coming back. And the other would be proving to the paymasters, whether that's the taxpayer or some kind of cultural grant institution, uh, that the money's going to people, you know, that lots of people are visiting and lots of people are actually interacting with the displays. Mm, yeah, and, and this industry is one where transparency is so important. Um, so being able to have the right data to achieve that um, is a, a big part of, of solving that problem for them. So previously, when we're going back to the clicker counter days, all we can do is tell there's people coming in the door, where now we can understand through things like tracking mobile devices through the space, you know, what those people are doing. Are they seeing that exhibition? Um, are they spending time there? Um, and being able to, to draw back from that into those, you know, whether it's reporting back to a government or a grant, um, some of those numbers is, is really powerful. And one of the big things, like you are saying, is that working out what the visitation is going to be uh, in the future. And I saw somewhere that you'd said that Tapapa, uh, who are using um, the service in Wellington, uh, they're able to... Uh, to a 90% accuracy predict visitor volumes yeah. thanks to the um, the program. How does that work? It's pretty um, it's pretty normal for us these days that um, you know getting those sort of accuracy rates we can predict visitation you know down to the hour we can predict it up to a year ahead um, and now we can predict um, not just how many people will come but how much money they'll spend in the cafe or um, what exhibitions they might attend when they go. Um, or whether they might buy like a student ticket versus an adult ticket or a military ticket. Um, and so being able to understand that is really, really um, important for anything from like strategic planning through to uh, operational things like stocking shops or cafes. Um, and uh, for, for us, we achieve that through machine learning. So it's a, it's a branch of AI um, and it helps us develop these models where we can feed these models all of the data history of a museum and they spit out for us the results of what we'll expect to see in the future. And I guess you you factor in things like there was a blockbuster exhibition, there was, you know, King Tut to visit or yeah. Andy Warhol or something. And, and is that just one of the kind of layers uh do you grade a blockbuster exhibition one to ten or something? Oh, we do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll have to talk afterwards about a job. <laughs> and no, we um, we we factor in all sorts of things. So our cruise ships and weather. I mean, it all adds up. Um, and it's different for every museum, and it's different for every exhibition. You know, some audiences are price sensitive. Some of them aren't. Sometimes they're price sensitive for one exhibition, but not another. And the benefit of machine learning is it sort of picks up on all of these little tiny noises and signals and the data that is hard for a human brain to process particularly at volume. And it learns how these things interact with each other. So we can say on any day, today is a Wednesday. It's during a school holiday. Um, there is a cruise ship in town. There is rain uh, outside. Um, there is a particular exhibition on, maybe there is a sports event taking place downtown tonight. So all of those sorts of things can add up to determine how many people come through the door and what they're going to do. And I imagine that allows institutions to plan better with staff and the like. And I, I wonder also, I got this feeling when thinking about um, following people's mobile devices through to get a pattern uh, of where they are. I imagine places are then able to go, oh, no one's visiting the Rose Room. We'd better improve our wayfinding or, 
you, you know, people seem to get stuck here. Maybe we should look at opening another door or, or, or whatever. That must be really cool to give, um, you yeah, know, museum. Do, do you um, spit out those recommendations or do you just provide the data and people can kind of work it out? At this stage, we're just providing the data, but we do want to sort of take that next step of providing the recommendations. Um, there are there are a huge amount of professionals behind the scenes who um, are involved in interpreting and analysing and understanding and designing those experiences. So um, curatorial staff, experience designers. Um, and so there's a, there's a great art to that piece as well. So the data tells us one part of the picture, but that's where we sort of need the human to step in and, and do mm. something with it. And, and that is the thing with the people at these institutions, isn't it? Because um, it, they may have from the outside a view of being a bit fusty or kind of, you know, old fashioned museums or august and maybe slow moving. Um, but I've, I've done a bit of work with uh, the Auckland Museum and the people there were so um, at the front of everything and so passionate about what they were doing and so keen to create kind of absolutely leading edge experiences for people. It's just kind of the buildings that are old. Yeah, I think one of the things people say to me is, oh, the museum industry must be old and dusty, and it's kind of anything but. Like, it's an incredibly innovative and groundbreaking area, Um, and it's full of people who are very, very creative, and they're thinking very much in the future. These places have been around for hundreds of years, and they will be around for hundreds of years, and those people think in those timescales, both backwards and forwards, um, and so they're, in, in many ways, much more cutting edge than any commercial venture can be. In terms of how you got the, the idea up, so you came back and um, went through the Lightning Labs process, is that right? How, oh, yeah. How did, how did that go? Um, so the Lightning Lab is an accelerator, um, and there's lots of incubators and accelerators around these days, but it was definitely the right one for us at the right time. Um, I think it's it was funded by uh, A.T. Dick Callahan in partnership with Creative HQ and a couple of other organisations. Um, and uh, the great thing that it achieved for us is it, it put me and, and the company in touch with lots of different networks, which we still use very much as a strength today. Um, and it taught us about um, this idea of, of developing things in a minimum viable product sense. And, and we still use that very much today as a cornerstone of our product management when we're releasing even new forecasts. Um, and it taught us about user experience design and staying close to the customer. And that's, again, remained a, a constant theme for us, which I think is a big part in being able to listen and react and respond to what the market is telling us. Um, particularly when you're doing enterprise business software, it, it can be a difficult thing to achieve. Um, and so I think that was those were sort of the big three takeaways that we got out of that program. And seeing from some of the, um, the write-ups that you know, pe- people uh, love to... Um associate themselves with you as the you know the, the um, business goes from strength to strength as well uh, and, and seeing um, that some of the stories about some of the grants around uh, you know specific grants access to build new capability like the mobile phone tracking and the like mm-hmm. so, so how, how does that go do you kind of like see a hole in the product and then go well how are we going to afford to fix this and then look around in the grant landscape or how does one navigate that and um, I think the grants are the government grants are an amazing opportunity 
when you are in New Zealand developing software that's going out to the world, there are a lot of disadvantages, whether it's time zone being very far away, being perceived as not an American company, all of those sorts of things. And um, the the support of the likes of Callahan and NZTE are a huge enabler in closing that gap. Um, but we we don't necessarily start with that place. You know, we start with where do we want to invest? Where are we going to develop our competitive differentiation? What makes us incredibly special to someone? Um, and how do we concentrate that further and really achieve those breakthroughs? And then once we understand that, we work backwards of how can we accelerate that? And that's where the Callahan partnership comes in. And in terms of um, that path to market, how did you go from um, starting out and kind of co-creating the product, I guess, with your first customers locally and then immediately kind of getting overseas? Yeah, so uh, Auckland Art Gallery up the road were the first museum that we tested and installed at. Um, and they were great in helping us sort of navigate the the first barriers to, you know, getting the product um, out and, and understanding how it would perform and um, I remember the first day sitting in the hall and, and seeing all of the numbers coming up on the screen as I was watching people pour through the door, which was incredibly exciting. Um, and then we went to um, the American Alliance of Museums, which um, is an association and also an, an expo and uh, conference. Um, and I think it was in Atlanta that year. And there's like 5,000 of these museums. I mean, there's 35,000 of them in the States. So you, quite a number from, from within the industry. Um, who converge upon this uh, one event and seeing this entire industry laid out in front of us and understanding all the different parts that it was comprised of really provided that jump in the deep end of the pool moment um, and put us in touch with our our first contacts over there and things kind of grew from there. What's the difference? I mean, I, I see that you've got a couple of uh, sales people who operate or sales mm-hmm. team, I don't know how many there are currently, sales team operating in um, the States. Is it is it different uh, culturally in terms of sales in the cultural sector in a way that um, in my experience in, in tech companies, the sales culture is rather different for business? Yeah, I think we're very much, I mean, we based ourselves out of Washington, D.C. in the U.S., um, and we're very much a um, an industry side business rather than a Silicon Valley side business, um, and you know part of and parcel of that is that our people, um, like Lauren Lynch, who heads up our our sales team over there, um, is someone who comes from the arts industry, who understands it, um, and that passion very much comes through in how we do business in the US um, and elsewhere. Um, it's not that we are sort of a Silicon Valley company trying to come in and ram technology down everybody's throats. We very much start with you know, our customer relationships and our position in the industry and our brand, um, what value we can add to the sector and, and go from there. One thing about your company uh, is that the female representation from board level right through the company uh, is more reflective of the world at large <laughs> and even um, skewing towards <laughs> yeah, yeah, female dominated. Tell me, tell me about how that works in the company and, um, and how also that's something that through your company and the media page, you've really tracked uh, that kind of journey in tech. Yeah, I think it was, it was always quite an important issue for me. Um, I'd very much throughout my career always been kind of felt like the lone wolf being um, 
often the only woman in the room in, in many situations. And I never wanted that for Dexabit. I, I always wanted it to, like you say, just represent the world. <laughs> um, Imagine. <laughs> strange thought. Um, and uh, and so whether that's gender or many other sort of aspects, we've got a big age range of people. We've got um, people from all walks of life, different ethnicities, different orientations, different religions, um, different experiences. Like um, you know, uh, some of our developers used to be mechanical engineers or zoologists, and some of them um, you know, uh, play in the circus after hours or teach a bar class. So there's a different diversity of people. Mm. Um, and I think it makes us a better company. Um, and I think, you know, all the research says that that's the case around the world, that diverse companies perform better. Um, but for us, I think particularly in our industry, it's incredibly yeah. important. Um, our customers are big proponents of that and they recognize that. Um, and I reckon it gives us cooler ideas. What have been the things that you've had to um, upskill and learn along the way, like maybe that you were expecting or maybe, everything. Or, <laughs> or, or maybe that you weren't expecting? Yeah, I think, I mean, this, this entrepreneurship gig, you kind of need to be the jack of all trades and you do spend your days dipping from software testing through to machine learning, through to sales, through to marketing and HR and finance and legal and pretty much everything. Um, and so you do have to learn pretty much all, all of those things along the way. Um, the hardest parts for me, I think, have been um, sort of achieving that balance between s- switching and swapping all of the all of the way. Um, I think the sales marketing product side for me came naturally. Um, some of the bits that have been new for me is, is learning about the AI pieces. You know, I wasn't a machine learning expert when I started, probably still not one today, but it, I can at least um, understand how it works. I can direct how um, our R&D is going. I can understand how those models have been developed and tested and brought to market. Um, and so I think that's, um, that's an important factor when you're starting out is to sort of be open to learning new things, whether you're a tech person learning the business side or a business person learning the tech side um, is, is recognizing that you do need to take on board an entire and brain full of, of experiences and skill sets to be able to get out there in the world. Is there anything along the way that you wish you had learnt earlier? That one's a tough one. <laughs> um, I think the the biggest one for me was getting into the US. I'd, I'd had a bit of experience in different markets. I'd spent a bit of time in Israel, Japan and Australia and um, a little bit over in Europe but I'd never spent a lot of time in the US and um, it's always funny coming into a market and being the foreigner, um, whether that's accent or learning how to say cilantro um, <laughs> or mobile rather than mobile. Um, and so understanding sort of all the cultural differences, even though we're both Western countries, there are a few. Um, uh, that was a big leap for me personally. Um, and I think if I'd had a bit of experience Maybe if I'd done OE in the States or something like that, it might have advanced me a little bit further mm. uh, in making that faster. Do you find the States to be, um, uh, are, are there more similarities amongst cultural institutions across the, 
the 50 states than differences because I've found in business dealings there are more differences between the states than yeah. similarities uh, in, in many ways. And you don't need an America strategy. You need a, an East Coast, a West Coast, a central, uh, almost a city-by-city, state-by-state strategy. Mm. I think commercially they, they deal with quite similar issues. Um, you know, they're all suffering from the same funding pressures, for example. Um, but I think... I mean, in the in the world, um, or generally out in the world, we deal with um, some venues who are very small. Maybe they get 50,000 visitors a year. Some venues that are very large, maybe they get 5 million. Some that have too many visitors that are dealing with capacity problems. Some that have not enough that are dealing with growth challenges. Um, some that are federal institutions. So they are dealing with um, government transparency, requirements some that are completely privatized and they operate more like a tourism business so they're so diverse as an industry um uh, that the states kind of whether they're in texas or um new york it doesn't come too much into it mm. other that one has cruise ships and the other one doesn't <laughs> uh, and, and is there um yeah, are there words that you live by? The questions that we always ask our guests. Uh, yeah, are there words you can't live by or mottos or things you come back to when things get tough or good? Um, hustle harder, we work would say. Um, uh, I think for me, my favourite phrase is um, is that it's all about the people, that that idea of um, he tangata. Like, if you get that equation right, everything else kind of follows. And I think that's been a motto that we've certainly lived by as a company, um, that our people come first and um, and that's where the magic of the company happens. Um, so I think that that's probably my, my lot. And the other question we ask, which is, you know, what advice do you now give entrepreneurs looking to start? And perhaps, perhaps especially to an entrepreneur that's had a successful career in the corporate sphere and has been thinking, should I take the jump? What kind of advice do you give someone having been through that journey now? I think the one piece that has really worked for us is that we've been very special to some people, um, not sort of an average thing to a lot of people. And so if there was one piece of advice that I could take from our experience and apply to other people, and that is when you're starting out, you know, aim for global domination in your market niche, you know, be really, really important to one industry. It doesn't have to be every industry. And it's a lot easier to get traction a lot faster and to really understand the value that you're adding uh, through your product when you do that. And just re- recently you um, took home a couple of the big awards at the High Tech yes. Awards. Yeah, how, how's that? And is that kind of, um, uh, I mean, you're, in many ways you're just getting started, but it's is it nice to have that kind of recognition? Yeah, I mean, these are the fun times, right? The, the first years of a company when you're getting things underway. And there are so many, um, so much blood, sweat and tears that go into it. Um, it's wonderful to be able to celebrate the successes when you can. The High Tech Awards, for me personally, they were always something I wanted to achieve, one of those milestones along the way. And we said this year, last year we were three times a finalist, bridesmaid, never the bride. Uh, and this year I really, really wanted um, to make sure that we had a win and it was on our target for the year um, and we got two, so that was a bit of a surprise. <laughs> That's so great. Um, but yeah, it is it is wonderful to have those moments with the team where you can take a step back and open the champagne and and 
you know, know that you're on the right track. Um, and I think celebrating that success along the way is so important. And what's next for Dukes of it? Well, I mean, so many things. I mean, we're, we just opened up in um, uh, London recently. We've uh, expanded into Asia. We're just going into the Middle East right now. So geographically, there's a lot of um, expansion happening. Um, we're uh, doubling the size of our team at the moment. So there's a, a lot of growth happening on that front. Um, and in the product, we're investing a lot into forecasting and building out our predictive analytics capability um, so that we can predict more museum visitors um, and uh, and really power up that. So, I mean, there's so many cool things that are happening. And I think as an industry as a whole, um, this AI wave that's coming at us at a rate of knots, um, there is not a better time in my life to be working on this problem in this space right now. So I think the 2018, 2019, 2020, some exciting things in store for us all. Ah, that's so cool. Thank you so much for coming and uh, sharing the story today. That's Angie Judge, the CEO and founder of Dexhibit. Cheers, Simon. Thank you so much. Thank you, Elizabeth Liddell, for producing. Uh, and thank you for having us along. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.